This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in. It's another episode of Grieving Voices, and today my guest is Kimberly Pittman-Schultz. She's an award-winning poet and author who writes, teaches, and speaks about death, living mindfully, and being a force for change in the world. With 25 years plus as a philanthropy leader and charitable and end-of-life planning advisor, Kimberly has worked with incredibly Diverse people looking for meaning after the loss of a spouse, partner, child, sibling, parent, grandparent, or beloved animal. Her focus is helping people cultivate joy every day so they can be so they can more deeply experience the meaning and beauty of their one and only lives. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Good to be here with you and your listeners. Just looking at your website, I felt like I like to look at people's website and I get a feel for, you know, the vibe. It's a vibe. (laughs) And so I I had actually heard something not that long ago that you can really understand someone by the written word, like what they write. And it's like when you meet your favorite author, like you've been reading all their books and then you meet them in person, but you're always going to have like this, some sort of judgment right when you first meet them well they're not really what I thought they'd be but you fell in love with the writing right so you you, but you feel like you know them because of the writing and so just that's where I I really look at people's websites and I feel either I either I feel that connection or I don't and I felt it with you and that's why I had asked you know I wanted to have you on so please share what brings you to grieving voices well, besides your lovely invitation, uh, I'm really, um, I've listened to some episodes. Um, I think you do something different with this, with this podcast, with your guests, with your audience than anyone else is doing, because you really do allow people to spend some time with their lost story. So often we're so focused on how do we heal and move forward, which is a big part of what I'm about, right? You know, I don't, you know, there is a degree to which you need to spend time in that story and really experience that story. And uh, one of the things I start out with in my book and as one of the first practices is telling yourself your own lost story, because so often we're telling our stories to other people and we're always tweaking them because we have a different audience, right? So you might say one thing to a coworker, something else to a friend, something else to your pastor or your rabbi. Um, But so often we don't pause and really just sit with our own lost and process it. And it's hard. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. And you don't necessarily want to do it at certain points of your process. Um, But that's one of the things I feel like listening to how you interact with your guests is that people have a chance to sit with their story a little bit and then to move forward with what has come out of that experience. And it's still coming out because, you know, it, I I like to say loss comes along 
and then it comes along with us for the rest of our lives. So it's a, it's an ongoing um, process. So I'm uh, really excited and honored to, to be here talking with you. Thank you. I love that last part when you said it comes along and it along and along and along, right? It never, (laughs) it, because wherever you, you take your past with you, wherever you go. Right. Yeah. I had one guest. um, She's actually a mentor for me through the grief recovery Institute. And she said, your past becomes your present until it's healed or your past is your present until it is healed. And so that was definitely true for me. So thank you for listening to my podcast and, and for your um, kind words. I really appreciate it. What are the losses that have been most impactful for you? Oh, you know, one of the um, advantages and disadvantages, I suppose, of being on the planet for a while is there are over time, you're going to have loss and you're going to have multiple losses. I think, um, obviously, for me, there were two sets of losses that really have impacted my life the most. Uh, When I was about three and a half years old, I lost two sisters in a house fire. We were all in the same room. And I won't go into the details except to say that um, I was the one that was able to be rescued and my other two sisters could not. And so obviously that was a big, um, a big impact for me. And my, my mother could not ever talk about it. And so as a kid, I really, every, no one was supposed to talk about it. And so there was that whole trying to process it as a little kid and then moving through your life. Um, so that was at age three at age 43. Um, my mother was dealing with, um, small cell lung cancer terminal And two weeks before she died, so we knew at some point that this was going to come to an end. That was not a big surprise, although it's still a surprise when you're actually there. Um, But but you're kind of grieving that anticipatory grief. But then a a friend and my next door neighbor, two weeks before my mother died, killed herself, shot herself in the heart and happened to do it under the tree that my kitchen window looks out on. And so... So I have these series of losses. There have been many other losses. Uh, you know, I have companion animals that I've grieved deeply over and still miss, even though I have other cats in my life. But those two sets, losing my sister and then losing Ruth was my was my friend and neighbor and my mother within two weeks of, of each other, that were really kind of big events and, and pivotal for me and in shaping who I am. Well, I can't imagine. Can I ask, were you the one that found your neighbor? No, she did it at night, uh, Memorial Day weekend. And um, it's interesting because I had this practice uh, every evening and and, and and I still have this practice. I stopped it for about two years after she died, but uh, where I'd go out, I go out every night and say goodnight to the night. And I just kind of take in the night and I feel moments of gratitude. And I said, good intentions out to people. And that night, for whatever reason, I was tired. I don't remember why, but I did not do that. And I was woken up at one o'clock in the morning, my husband and I, by a knock by the sheriff on the door telling us, just ask if we've heard anything, seen anything. Um, and I just immediately, it's the weirdest thing. I just, the weirdest thing, but I just knew immediately something was wrong with Ruth. Uh, and I even said that to my husband. He goes, oh, you know, I'm sure it's nothing. And of course it, it was very much something. And we learned the next day. I asked that because you'd said your window faces there. So I just, yeah. Well, fortunately I did not witness that. And by the next morning she, they had removed her. I mean, she was no longer there, but I could never 
I mean, Victoria, I could just never look at that tree again the same way. I mean, I just could never, you know, to me, I'm, an, I'm a very nature-oriented person. So the tree, instead of being the symbol of growth and life, became, you know, uh, you know the, the tree of life, right? That's the ultimate mm -hmm. um, archetype, um, was just really a great tree of sadness for me um, to look at every day and just think about her being there. And, you know, and anyone who's, and I know many of your listeners have dealt with, all that goes through your head in a suicide, all the shoulda, coulda, if I'd only, and then what was going through that, you know, just trying to put yourself in that person's place, trying to imagine how you, your life is so broken that you get to the point that you make that choice for yourself, you know? So, um, so no, fortunately I didn't witness that, but it did become every morning, <laughs> every night, every time I looked out that window, it was really tough because it was just a reminder that Ruth wasn't, Ruth, Ruth wasn't there anymore. Do you still live there? No, no. Um, I, it was, it became very difficult to live there. And then after my mother passed away, um, we were living in Pennsylvania then. And my, my husband's originally from California. We, I lived much of my adult life in California. We knew at some point we wanted to get back West. We ended up moving to Washington state before returning back to California. Um, but it, I will say Victoria became very hard to live there, to live in Pennsylvania, just because so that my father was still there and siblings were still there. Um, and I, I didn't grow up there, but I had lived there for seven years um, and moved there to be closer to my family. Ironically, when I left California, I, I would say to people, people would say, you don't move from California to Pennsylvania. You move from Pennsylvania to California, you're doing it backwards. And I'm like, well, I just want to get to know, get to know my family before we all leave the planet. And I kind of said that off the cuff and how true it turned out to be in terms of really developing, you know, getting close. I had not lived near my parents in 20, over 20 years. So um, I'm so glad I made that move, but it became really difficult to stay there, particularly to stay in that house um, after Ruth left. Well, that's even more grief too, right? Yeah, that was probably one of the big mistakes I made because not long after that, I was offered a, a position. Um, I had been leading a, a CEO of a community foundation in Pennsylvania. I had been offered a comparable position in the West. We knew we wanted to get back West. I had this feeling of just, you want to flee, which sometimes happens with loss, right? You have this feeling that you just want to run away. And so in the midst of all this, and then my father is in his end of lifetime, he, he continued another two and a half years, but, you know, so you then move across country and you start a new job and we didn't move back to California, we moved to Washington state, which was I loved many things I loved about living there, um, but that's a lot of change at one time. And looking back, it's like that would not be one of my recommendations, you know, to anyone at that point anyway. I think it was too soon, but I'm human. Right. We learn as we go. But yeah, yeah. that's a great tip, though, to give grievers. It's you're not thinking necessarily clearly, right? You can't really tune into your own intuition and your own guidance system because you're so filled with emotional stuff. Right. So I think before you make any life-changing decision like that, like a move across the country or a job or anything, it's really take the time to settle into yourself and maybe right. kind of get some guidance maybe in how to tap into your own knowing, right? Absolutely. And I think even though, you know, we talked about you have multiple griefs over lifetime each of those, even though we do have griever styles, and it's not that you're categorizing anyone in any one way, we do know there's some general styles of grieving that people fall into. And then you've got things like gender and gender orientation, or introvert, extrovert, all those things play into how we grieve. But I've also found that 
each loss and different points in our life result in different responses to grief and loss as well. So it's not like because you dealt with one loss this way that that means the other, you know, the next loss is the same way. And so what surprised me about my mother's loss in particular, besides being tied to this other loss is, you know, I knew she was going to be passing away. I had all that anticipatory grief and I expected it to be difficult, but I didn't know it would lead me into two years of what I call lost limbo because I just really, really, really was lost. My father, who in many ways I felt closer to, it was difficult to lose him, but I kind of rebounded from that much, much better. And I do think it has to do at a more complicated relationship with my mother um, than I did with my father. I'm sure that's all of it, but that's the other thing you don't know. So you need to, you need to kind of spend a little time again with, with your, give your grief a little chance to unfold. So, you know, what is it going to be like? Because initially if you don't necessarily have a whole lot of control, you're kind of following it before you learn how to, uh, you know, reintegrate it into a, a new life. Did it help you to, and I don't know, maybe you weren't able to do this, or maybe it wasn't part of your process, but I imagine your mother losing two other children. I'm a mother. I can't imagine losing a child, you know, and so, and still the difficulty of still having to be present and be a mother to you and any other children that did you have other siblings later on? Yeah. Later on, my sister came along and then um, some, you know, even further later on, my brother came along. So there were other children later on, but to get where I think you're going, it, my mother's life has changed forever. And my mother, what I did not know um, until I was 33, because again, nobody talked about it. And when I would try to ask questions, people would just try to change the subject matter. All my life until age 20, so from age three to 33, I did not know that part of what, that what caused the fire, what I knew it was an accident, but what the story I had been told to protect me, um, actually was not true. <laughs> that in fact, um, my mother fell asleep smoking in bed and had a can of hairspray next to the bed that blew up. And that just immediately, just the house just went up in flames so quickly. And so she lived with that um, her whole life. And at the end of her life, you know, a big part of trying to, for her to find some peace as she began, you know, her process of leaving this, this life was trying to come to terms with that, even all those years later, as her life was coming to an end, it was a very real thing, but I didn't know that until I was 33. So then I kind of went through a whole nother loss process around that, because, you know, my, my father said, well, we didn't want you to like blame your mother. I was like, gosh, dang, I don't blame my mother. I, I had this immense grief for her, like for her, like I was owning it for her. And just I think about all the times you couldn't hug my mother. My mother wasn't good at hugging. Like if you went to hug her, she'd just kind of lean in almost like she didn't deserve a hug. I mean, we used to, I used to laugh about that. It's like, now I know why, you know, and I think about some of the, she, you know, she suffered from some mental health issues as well that I'm sure all this exacerbated, right? And if I'd known some of this, particularly as a teenager, oh my gosh, it would have helped me. It was still been a challenging time in our household, but I would have been able to process it better. So sometimes people try to protect kids and in the long term, you know, maybe it's not as protective as people think. Um, but yeah, I, she, she struggled her whole life. Yeah. They say grief shared is grief diminished. And I think that's, it's a disservice to children um, when we think that not talking about it is protecting them and 
my dad passed away when I was eight and it was something too. My mom openly grieved and it was almost to the point, not unhealthy, but like I couldn't, there was no space for me to grieve because it took up so much room in our home, you know? Yeah, I do. I absolutely know what you're saying, Victoria. I really do. So, you know, parents listening, it does not help the children to shield them from the reality of, of grief. It really sets them up to, like you said, and like me personally too, and many people that I've talked to on this podcast who experienced traumatic or grief experiences in childhood, it's not something that just goes away because it wasn't talked about. In fact, it has probably more, does more damage than anything. Did you feel this immense pressure then to, to, to do something impactful and do something, you know, because. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I do feel, and it's interesting the way you come at this question, because I think one strategy for actually dealing with loss and the fact that, and survivor grief and survivor guilt, like, why did I get to live? You know, just be, and I mean, I'm alive because I happen to be on the bottom bunk and old enough to walk to a window and pound on a window and get out, right? I mean, it's just so arbitrary in some cases. I mean, just the way it happened. So part of what has helped me is being what I call an avatar, which is, you know, there are times um, when I've not wanted to do something or I felt really stuck or, you know, uh, I call, there's a certain kind of griever process I call being a bear where you just want to go and hibernate in a cave and just everybody go away. And part of coming out of that is saying, well, you know, they didn't get to live. So I need to live for myself. I need to live for them. Um, I can see things. I have clothing that I wear that my mother never got to wear that. um, Now we were very different people. So she had long arms. She was tall herself. (laughs) I roll up the sleeves, you know, but I wear them for her and I feel her when I do that. Um, So on one hand, it's a really healthy and empowering thing to do, but I have also been in exactly the place that you're talking about where at one point, I became such a workaholic, such a, you know, just really felt like I can't waste a single minute because there's all these people that don't get to live, you know, like 9-11. I still think about the people who got up like any other morning and thought they were going to go to work or go to school and come home and it, it, you know, it was going to be another day. And they didn't get to have any more days after that. So you feel you can get to a point where you take being that avatar for your others a little too far. So it, it really is about balance. It can be a way to help you in, integrate them into your life because they are part of you um, that's been removed. And so you're trying to hold on to that part as you move forward. Um, but you can take it to an extremes. And I, I have been in that place and had to just back up and say, maybe my others want to rest right now. Maybe my others would really like to sit outside in the sun and just chill, you know? Um, so it's, 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 that's an interesting part of all of this. I kind of want to circle back to your mother's decline and how you said that, you know, part of her process at in her end of days was to come to terms with those losses that she had. And I had actually had a conversation with Dr. Chris Kerr. He's researcher of end of life experiences. And the one thing that he says is that, and I think this is something that people don't necessarily look at terminal illness and think, Oh, gee, that's a beautiful experience, or it can be, right? And I certainly was one of them because that's how my dad passed away in a nursing home, right? But going through end-of-life training as a doula, um, 
completely flipped that on its head for me because, and talking to Dr. Chris Kerr, because just to your point, it's like our soul has this, this, our soul will process what, what it's longing for, right. As we get through to the end of life. And he had a beautiful, he has a beautiful example in, in the podcast episode, but essentially, and one of the stories was too, that he shared real quickly, I'll share it, but um, a mother had lost a baby miscarried. And at the end of her life, her family was in the room with her and she started rocking a baby. And they realized that because there was actually, I think someone in the room that did not know that she had had a miscarriage, but it's, you know, the loved ones come to you at the end of life. It's been witnessed and stories have been, it's been documented in research that this starts happening as early as even six months before someone passes of a terminal illness. Did your mother ever speak to any experiences like that? Absolutely. And I witnessed it. I mean, I witnessed it myself and my father who was agnostic and would never have expected it. And his end of lifetime in the hospital had some very amazing experiences Um, with my mother, though, to get to your question. It was still several months before she passed. So sometimes it comes and goes over that period of time. But um, she would have there were several things were meaningful. She was visited by her mother. She felt her mother there. And her mother, as she and her mother had a complicated relationship, and the time that they spent um, seemed to bring some reconciliation at the end of life. And then, and I write about this in my book, actually, um, there's a point at which my sisters, and it's not my sisters, it's my older sister. I had one, the sisters that died, one, when I was three and a half, my older sister was right before her seventh birthday. And my younger sister, the day of the fire was literally her second birthday. So she died on her second birthday. So my mother at the end of life um, for a while, and it just kind of flashed for just out of the blue in the evening would be visited by my older sister. And so the first time this happened, I was with my mother and um, we were sitting together and, you know, and she was kind of at the end of the day. And so we're going to be kind of tucking her in, if you will, for the day. She's, you know, no energy. She's very tired. Right. And you know, my mother seeing my sister and became very distraught. I mean, physically distraught, like almost like she was in physical pain. And what disturbed her was that the older sister was there, but the younger sister who had died on her second birthday was not there. And it was extremely disrupting to her. And so I'm going through my, my, my mind trying to think, you know, what can I offer here? What can I do here? Because she's just like physically bent over, like she's in physical pain. And so I just said, Oh, mama, you know, little kids, she's probably just off playing, you know, and the goal was not to any way minimize what was happening, because I could see what she was seeing, she was looking in a very specific place, she was seeing um, my older sister as a child, I wondered in my head at the time, Victoria, I wondered, what does this scene look like to my mother, because she's seeing my older sister, who's just before her seventh birthday. And here's her 40 something year old, you know, middle child, right at that point, you know, what do we look like to her? Um, But as soon as I offered that, and she thought about that, she calmed down. And then she didn't talk to my older sister. But there was just this quiet as she and she just walked away feeling or had this feeling that my older sister was okay, and that she felt loved. And that was really comforting to her. And then my sister just kind of disappeared. And this happened for a while for, you know, really a couple of weeks. And then just as mysteriously, she stopped being visited by my sister. She never did see my younger sister, but somehow she came to terms that 
she was just off playing and that somehow the interaction with, you know, whatever my older sister was in that moment, whatever real is, you know, was very real for her, um, set her mind at ease. And it was a, a great gift. And it was not, someone said, oh, well, maybe it's her meds. It was not her meds. You know, I don't know what it is. Is it the mind? Is it the spiritual world? I just, one of the beauties of being at this stage of my life is it's like, who cares? Whatever it was, it was real for her. And, and it was healing for her at a time that she really, really needed that um, feeling that things were okay after so many years of them not being okay. And how that is helpful for you too, and your healing. And for many families who get to experience that with their loved ones, right? That's, and I think like Dr. Chris Kerr said in that episode too, he said, you know, we medicalize dying. We medicalize dying. And when we medicalize dying, we rob people of the opportunity to, you know, keep them comfortable, but don't rob them of the opportunity to have these very lucid experiences that really set, like, set their soul at ease, really. It can help them complete. Right. Right. And I think it's also a gift for you if you let your mind be open. I mean, I've certainly had Mm -hmm. people um, and I work in in charitable um, and philanthropic end of life planning. So I've worked with a lot of people at the end of their life who are trying to do some like charitable and estate type planning. But we're also in a time now of, of of what I call kind of the good death movement, right, where people are very consciously thinking about what they want that end of life time to be like. I think the COVID pandemic has brought new light to that and people realizing what they don't want. So they start thinking about what they do, but having worked with so many people over the years who are in that end of life or nearing that end of life time and the experiences they've had. And I've talked with people and like, Oh, dad's going crazy again. He's thinking this and he's thinking this. And I'm like, don't try to correct him, lean into it. This is real for him. And when you try to tell him, no, dad, so-and-so is dead or, no, that's not really here. You're hallucinating or we need to scale back your meds. Um, people are well-intended, um, but it doesn't help that person at all. I've never seen any time where that helps. And if anything, it can drive people into, I, in my, again, I'm not, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I just know what I've witnessed and experienced. And that is when you try to tell people that these things are, you just make them feel a little crazy and like they're like they're dying wrong. I mean, that's just that that's the, that would be the crazy thing is to have people somehow think they're doing their own end of lifetime wrong because you can't. And you know, the fact that we can't explain what these things are or we want to come up with an explanation doesn't really matter. It's for them, it really helps. I also think too, it's why it's so important that before you get to that point with a loved one who is sick or dying or before you find yourself in that situation where you're by a bedside, it's so important to have addressed what is incomplete for you with that relationship. Because I think, you know, it can be a less than loving relationship or it can be a super, super loving relationship, almost to the point of codependency. And then you're just holding on and holding tight with, you know, with a grip that, let's do anything and everything to stop this from happening. And it really is dishonoring the natural process. And yeah, so there's so many different ways we could dig into that topic even more. The end of life is something that 
yeah, I haven't really fully explored it as an end of life doula. I'm not even sure what that's going to look like for me, but um, education is a definite cornerstone of that. Just that's why I started this podcast too, is just education of grief because so many don't even recognize grief in themselves, but it shows up in all kinds of ways. (laughs) Well, because grief, when people think of grief, they tend to compartmentalize it to just mean sadness or longing or whatever, but it's this kaleidoscope. I mean, absolute kaleidoscope of emotions, physical sensations, thought patterns. It's so many things. So you get, you know, so sometimes people say, and I can think of several people I've worked with over the years who I'm thinking of in my book, I write about this one artist who's really funny. She was really quirky, but she's like, oh, I'm so past grief, you know, over her mother dying. But then all the three years after her mother died, all these weird things started happening in her life that she couldn't make sense of. And, you know, I think we came to the conclusion was she, she was still grieving and there's still things she needed to deal with, you know, that she just hadn't really dealt with. And they were showing up um, in multiple ways that you wouldn't think that's grief. It's like, yeah, I think that probably is part of your grief, you know? So absolutely. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your book. Ah, well, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, you know, a little over a year ago, I started writing, I decided to write a book and it wasn't something I had really planned to do, but I had been um, really just paying attention to the people I was working with in my work and how they were struggling with COVID and the seeming randomness of this invisible virus that was making some people very sick and others not so much. And, um, you know, initially the deaths were very terrible. I mean, at one point, uh, I think in April of 2020, the people that were going into the hospital in New York um, if they were over 65 and put on a ventilator, they had a 95% chance of dying. 90, now, things have gotten a lot better since then. We've learned so much. There's more therapies. There's all kinds of things. But at that point, I literally had older people that I was working with who said, I want to add something into my advanced directive because if I get this thing, I don't want to go to the, I just want something that, that puts me to sleep. I don't want to go that way and without my loved ones around me. And, and so I think, so I'm having all these kinds of conversations with people. And then right before people believed in COVID, I mean, initially there was like, oh, you have to go to China to get it. And if you did, it was probably not a thing. Right. And I had gotten sick on a business trip um, in Seattle, right around the time Seattle was determined to have community spread. Long story short, I, whether or not I had it's not clear. I didn't have flu because I was tested for that. And the early, when I finally was able to get a test because there was almost no tests here, it was a really early version. And I was actually the first person in this one area to get tested. So, you know, I'm not even sure how accurate at that point they could be accurate both and inaccurate both ways. But I was very sick for about a month. And so you're laying there watching all of this unfold and you're hearing interviews with people and you're, And I like to read a little bit, you know, beyond just the typical what comes on your media, you know, news channel or comes up in a a feed on something. And so I'm picking up these stories in strange places of people having what seems like COVID, even though supposedly they've never been to to China or at that point that France, you know, started to spread out. But the fear that was there and fear across all age ranges and the sudden feeling that, oh, my gosh, this could happen to me. This could happen to somebody I know. Um, so writing the book for me was about, and of course you feel a little egotistical, but I felt like I, this had been such a part of my life. It's like, I'm really good at death. You know, I mean, I've dealt with it for so many different ways. I've dealt with it in my career. Um, I helped raise funds for the per, first pet loss support hotline at a 
veterinary school early in my career. So I thought maybe I can offer something to help people navigate this, some actual practices and some storytelling so people don't feel all alone. And then my husband is in his end of life time. So, you know, the title is Grieving Us, a field guide for living with loss without losing yourself. And the title really works on multiple levels because in some ways, you know, I'm kind of grieving the end of what I know is going to be my own relationship with my husband and he's still with me, which is wonderful. Um, but we know day by day it's, it can happen at any time. Right. Um, that's always been true for all of us. Right. But when someone gets older and when they have a very, um, major illness, you know, it just brings it into such focus. So the book was about, you know, not only, you know, when you write about something, you get better at it yourself. Um, and you understand it better yourself. So my goal was to help others to kind of help myself through some difficult challenges. Um, and to just to just offer some practices, because I know for myself that there are a, a lot of really good grief books out there. But I myself, when I was looking for different therapies or strategies, I felt so often there was no how to, you know, there were stories to read about, there was talk therapy, but I, there was never like, what are some specific things I could do to try to take a break from this? And I had figured those out. Um, at least for me, may not work for everybody, but I wanted to share those. So that's really what the book is about. And I got to tell you, Victoria, it's just, you feel a little egotistical, like, what do I really have to offer? But, you know, since that time, I've had some amazing outreach from some of my readers telling me about how the book has helped them. I had somebody come up in my Facebook, and I'm not a big Facebook person, but, you know, she's in Vietnam, and she's not only dealing with you know, grieving a longer term loss of her parents. But Vietnam has been having some very difficult challenges. And from what she described, pretty horrific challenges with COVID-19. Um, I recently popped up that one of my books reviews on Amazon was from someone who lost a, a, um, about a 50 day old infant um, many years ago and has been struggling all these years, even though she has other children and has moved, clearly moved forward in her life. But she's still been struggling and found, um, you know, and not to, you know, I mean, it's not about my ego, but to for the way she described the impact of my book on her, it's like, you know what, if something happened to me tomorrow, at least I know I helped somebody, I helped a few somebodies. And that's what it was about. That is what it is about for me. I love the title too, by the way, would you say that you feel you've healed much of your grief? I do. I mean, I think grief is an interesting thing because um, in some ways it is like a really bad wound in that you have some kinds of wounds that will completely heal, right? They'll completely heal. There's no scar. There's no damage to a tissue or bone. And then there's more severe wounds where you'll have a scar that'll be, that'll be with you. Um, that, um, or I think about um, Anne Lamott, the writer who talks about, you know, when you lose somebody, sometimes it's, you know, you're going to move forward, but it's going to be like, having, uh, you know, it's like having your leg broken. And when it rains, you know, you have an achy leg that day because of this break that you endured. I think she's right about that. I think for me, I've healed it, but it is like a, a wound. It is like a broken leg that aches when, you know, when the weather gets cold and damp or um, a wound that sometimes just opens up again. And I, I do think it's that way for most people. So I've healed it from the standpoint of, is there joy in my life? You bet. Even on the worst days, I know how to find it. Um, but there will always, there's always something there because the loss does really go along with you. So living in, in it, as we speak, you know, with COVID 
and your husband, what are some things, some tips and things, maybe some that you include in your book, you don't have to give away the whole book, but a few things that you would share with the listeners today. Well, for me, what really helped me get out of what I called that two years of lost limbo after Ruth's suicide and my mother's death and moving across country and starting, you know, a a new life someplace else. um, You know, I struggled for two years. And one night I, I, when I lived there, uh, we had bought a house that had some river frontage. I was very fortunate. And um, I, when you lose, when you're in grief, a lot of your routines and habits get broken. And that's one of the things that I reflected back on that I think gets overlooked even even in sometimes very, really excellent grief psychotherapy, for instance, is the dailiness of our love, how love is a habit, and how when you lose somebody, your days really do get broken because there were times that you did things, there are times, if, even if they weren't present, um, that you were thinking about them at certain times or doing things, all those rituals, habits, and routines tied to them are now broken. And part of it is trying to figure out what those are. Sometimes people don't realize how their days are broken. Part of it's figuring out how to bridge those so that they don't become giant grief holes, because I think we've all had those moments. I was talking to someone recently who told me on a very certain day, a very certain time, she can be doing great all week. But when that day and time comes, she's in a grief hole because that's when her mother died. Um, She's at least figured that out. So then you can start to plan around it, right? So what helped me is when I was really struggling and I had these broken days and I hadn't yet figured out why I couldn't get it together, you know, why was I still struggling so much after two years, which I later found out is actually not terribly unusual, you know, I mean, it's not the ideal. I mean, I would certainly, life is short, so I would certainly encourage trying to get to joy sooner rather than later. But the one habit that wasn't broken is I always locked the doors every night before I went to bed. And I do write about this in the book. And one night, I just decided to wander out to the river I was definitely having a blue day and I just wandered out to the river and I was just standing there in the darkness and it was very quiet, but I could hear the water coming over the stones um, in the river. Sometimes um, you can actually hear voices in the water and it's not like there's really actually, it's just the way the sound, the water um, moving through the rocks and the shifts and you could hear birds shifting up in the trees, you know, in their night roosts. And it was, there was mist. So the just feeling, and I was just really taking it all in. And then I decided to go back and lock the doors and go to bed. Well, as I was walking back to the house, Victoria, I realized in that few moments, it couldn't have been more than three or five minutes I stood by the river. I felt okay. I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel ebullient. I mean, you know, I wasn't, my world was, I wasn't suddenly cured or healed, but I felt okay. And so I realized I had taken a break from grief. And so then I started thinking, I need to do this. I need to do more of this. And I started implementing what I call tiny come back to your senses rituals, because for me, it was just coming back to my own body, my own senses, being so caught up in the sounds, the sight, the smells, how I, how I felt in that moment, that it turned down the volume on my mind a little bit, because I think our minds are great for healing, but they can also pull us into some dark places. And I just got absorbed. And so what I would always encourage people is just the simplest thing at all is just to stop and breathe. And you don't have to be a meditator, you don't have to be in mindfulness, those things help. But you can literally just take three minutes, get an egg timer, an old fashioned egg timer, if you need to and just sit and pay attention to your breath, or I like to tell people pick one sense and sense, scent, your sense of scent is often a good one, because it involves breathing. Although if scent is something that really triggers you because your beloved loves, you know, lavender or something, you might want to choose hearing or taste, but just really 
immerse yourself in that sense for just a few minutes and you really can take a break from grief. And once you start taking more breaks and, and make those breaks larger, joy can start to come back. The joy is there. I really believe it's always there, but you can invite it back in. And I will say just really quickly, I wanted to find what I mean when I say joy, because it's not like you're a bullion, you're going to kick your heels up, you know, the, you know, all is good forever. To me, joy is about feeling connected to your own life, feeling connected to the moment, feeling like your life has meaning and purpose, even if you don't know what it is, but in you just belong to the moment and to your life and to be a part of the world. To me, when you have that, that's really where joy starts. And that's what those little grief breaks allow you to do. So that's what I would encourage is just get back to your senses for a few minutes a day. I actually did that before our call today. My back patio is just one of my favorite spots because the birds. And so I went and I sat on the concrete and just closed my eyes. And I just felt the sun on me and the breeze and heard the birds and the barking dog, the the neighbor's barking dog. But it really is just finding that sense of peace within ourselves. It, it doesn't have to be this pressure to feel joy, but just a sense of peace that's with, that comes from within. And like you said, it's not, you can't, you, it's not just going to happen on its own. You have to curate that. And um, so, yeah, I think that's a perfect, perfect tip to give because I've, I've worked a lot on working on that myself. Like just, I do, I do meditate daily, but break in the middle of the day, 10 minutes. Way more powerful. I've had people say, oh, that sounds so hokey, you know, and I, I tell a few stories in the book, one in particular of the, you know, up and coming executive who just was go, 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 but every night would come home and just sob as she said, sob into her glass of wine um, because of, she was missing her brother. So, and didn't feel like she had time to do anything, but we all can find just even three minutes and it sounds hokey and um, Pollyanna-ish, I've, I've been accused of both of those, until you do it, until you have that moment in that you had today of being in the sun and you're feeling that sun and you're also hearing things. And even if the, what, you know, you're not even judging the dog barking, you're just like, mm-hmm. you might not have ever even noticed that. It's just all these things that, you, that happen all the time. I mean, we have sensory input coming in at us right and left all the time. And of course, if we try to remember everything and pay attention to everything, we go a little bonkers. But in the moment to really just feel that sun and be paying attention to all of that, um, it just slows everything down. And you realize that the world is just okay. And it's still going on. And you're here. I mean, you're here and you're feeling it. So um, yeah, it's not it's way more powerful than it sounds. It often sounds too simple to be true, but it, it, it works very well. Well, and it takes a conscious choice. You consciously have, yeah, you have to choose it because like I said, it's not going to spontaneously happen on its own. You can chase sadness and sorrow, which are valid feelings, but do you want to chase those feelings or do you want to chase solace and peace and feeling good? Just ask yourself, what would feel good right now? Exactly. sun on my face. And that's why I chased it. I sat down and I just felt the warm sun on me. Because pretty soon it's going to be, the leaves are turning. Cold, yeah. North Dakota winters are long. So yeah, savor it while you can, right? I'm curious too, you've given some great tips, but what are some things that you found helpful in ways that others supported you and have supported you now with, right. with your husband and everything? Yeah, I think one of the things that's 
has surprised me at different points in my life is when we think about being supported for others, I think the two things I would say is it's very easy for all of us um, to feel like we want certain kinds of support for, even if we can't name it, like you, you don't realize you have, you have an expectation until the expectation isn't met. And then you realize that there was an expectation there. I think without realizing it, when we're grieving, there is a sense of what we think we want from other people. And sometimes people immediately around us can give us that. And sometimes they can't. And so there's two things I would say about that, that I think are really helpful. One is it, it's very easy when you're grieving and anger and disappointment and long, there's so many emotions that go with grieving. But if you let yourself get caught up with, um, you know, you had someone on your podcast that talked about a friend who just wasn't there for her, like radically not there for her. Um, you can get so tied up with, and I'm not reflecting on the person you're interviewing, but I'm just saying I've known so many people that'll get so tied up and that becomes part of their grief, being angry, being disappointed, being hurt, all those things. You just pull yourself down deeper into the hole. Sometimes the reason people, like at the end of my mother's life, the person that she, this, well, there are two people in her life, two women friends she cared about deeply. One of them was so there for her. One of them was so not there for her, but that's because she had such an empathic personality she could not personally bear it. Um, so I would say express radical empathy and just say, you know what? I don't understand why this person's not here. It upsets me. It hurts me. Honor it. Acknowledge that that's how you feel. But then I would say the best thing you can do is let go of that and just assume for whatever reason, she or he cannot be there for me and move on. Related to that is accepting that sometimes the people immediately around you are not the ones that can support you. Sometimes what you really need are other kinds of people that you would not think about. And so for me, like when I was really struggling with my mom, it was actually my mother-in-law who didn't live near me, but we've talked frequently by phone, who I felt was one of the most supportive people to me at the time in dealing with my you know, the loss of my mother and in understanding why it was, why is it taking her so long to read? You know, my mother-in-law got it in a way that was helpful. Um, the other thing is, you know, is, is sometimes being a part of a group of, of strangers that are on their own lost journeys. Um, one of the things that I've started as a result of my book and people wanting help um, in implementing, because it's one thing to have the information, it's another thing to actually implement it and figure out how to integrate it into your life. So, you know, one of the, so I'm rolling out something that's essentially a part workshop, part course, if you will, smart, you know, sort of small group experience so that people can support each other and they don't, they're coming together, don't know each other, but they're on loss support paths or on different loss paths where they can support each other in ways that maybe other people right in their immediate environment can't. And sometimes people can talk much more openly about their loss with someone that's a perfect or an imperfect stranger um, than they can with someone like a lot of mothers I find, and maybe you can relate to this, have a hard time talking about a loss because they need to feel strong for their children or their spouse. And so sometimes it's easier for them to talk with someone that's not part of their family where they can really let their hair down and just, you know, um, express what's going on and then have accountability. So if you say, I'm going to start doing this thing where I go out every day in the sun on my back porch at 10 o'clock so that I can start getting those breaks. And then you let your life get busy or you, you're in that kind of grief hole you have someone that can kind of say, hey, are you out on the patio? Did you do it? Are you out there? Let's go out on the patio together. I'll get on my patio, you go on your others. So that would be the other thing I would say is look for people that might not be in your environment that can support you or understand you and help you feel 
okay and help you stay on your own path to, to getting better. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. What has grief taught you? Oh my gosh, Victoria, so many things. Um, I, the very, I, I like, one of the things I like to do is go with the very first word that pops into my head, um, which can be dangerous, I suppose, if I'm having a, I have, have, I'm a word nerd. So sometimes quirky words pop into my head, but the first word that popped into my head when you ask that question is resilience. Um, because there are few experiences um, and, you know, Sometimes we like to say certain losses are worse than other losses. I, I really like to stay away from that because somebody losing a grandparent, it can be actually way worse than losing their dad. It's hard to imagine, but I've witnessed it. It has to do with that relationship and the dailiness of that relationship and how broken those days are. But um, what I would say is, so whatever that, when you go through a really tough period of grief, whatever that grief is for, for whatever that lot, it might even be a death. It might be a divorce. It might be, you know, your parents got divorced and now you don't see your dad very often, your mom very often. When you go through that and you are able to come out on the other side, you've learned some things. You've learned some skills for the next one of those that comes along because, you know, we know there's always going to be another something coming along. You don't look for it. You don't invite it, but you can become more resilient and kind of take care of yourself better so that when the next thing comes, you're able to not get stuck as long or um, hurt as long. Because I do believe, and the science is there, that the longer you stay in pain, it can become a way of life. It can become a new way of life. And then it gets harder and harder to actually get back to a place of wellness and feeling joy and peace and those kinds of things. So resilience is definitely the thing that pops into my mind. And it's a, it's a coded word for some, because I know in some situations, you know, resilience suggests like, oh, buck up, you know, come on, be a man, be a woman. You know, that's not what I mean at all to me. And I even define it in my book so that we're talking about the same thing, because sometimes even in the work environment, resilience is used to say, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and let's move on. It's like an excuse for not granting people space to to be human, basically, is what it means. But resilience, what I mean, is really, and it's, and what's often described as bouncing back. And I, I got to say, I disagree with that definition, because I don't think coming back from grief is ever a bounce. <laughs> you know, I've, I've never just bounced back. And you're not really bouncing back, because you're like, you're not the same person you were before that event. You know, when somebody dies, part of who you are, that relationship, I mean, that physical presence is gone and you have to figure out a new way of living without that person in their, in their previous form, you know, we can take them with us in a different way. So really resilience to me is really about, you know, knowing how you develop the skills and mindsets to help you take whatever's coming and to know, to know in your bones that you will get through this and that you have an ability to, to get to a new place that's going to be different, but where you can feel good again. Yeah, I've said this many times on my podcast, and I'll say it again, because it came up and that was your word. But when people, I think the word resilience and used in reference to children who have experienced grief and loss and trauma as children, I think that's almost a way for adults to let themselves off the hook. You know, when they say children, oh, they're resilient, they'll bounce back. Like you said, they'll bounce back. They're resilient. But children don't choose resilience. Resilience is something that it's, they either, it's a survival mechanism, really. And so you know this, being a child who is experienced, who is in a home with a lot of grief, and was raised with grief in the home. 
and had personal losses yourself as a child. You lost your sisters too. Don't forget that, you know, like people can forget that, like you had a loss as well. And so I am curious, how did the lack of communication around your loss, your mother's loss, the loss of your sisters, how did that, especially in the teen years, because that can be a really trying time for a lot of people, but how did that impact your school years? Yeah. I mean, gosh, probably in so many ways, including in ways that I probably can't even articulate or even understand myself. Um, because you really, even now at this stage of my life, I still process pieces of it and I still have um, elements of memory that I kind of come back and look at again. And as time goes by and you have new experiences and memories, you know, that also changes how you remember what you remember. It's a, it, there's like a layering on effect. So it's, it, it, you know, it, it, you just can keep evolving. I will say by the time I got to high school, my father was also a field engineer for several years in my life. So before my sister and brother came along later, sort of the, the you know, afterwards, right, much later, uh, I think it was nine when my sister was born and then 15 when my, my brother was born. But there was a period where, um, kind of reminds me of me leaving my, my home in the East to go back West, you know, where my father got a job as a field engineer. And so we put all of our stuff in storage. We were living in St. Louis then. That's where I was originally born. And instead of just leaving my mom and I there while he went off to all these job sites, he bought a travel trailer and we went with him from place to place. It was actually a really good experience for my mom because it got her away from, again, just getting away from a very dark place and time. Um, but what it meant for me is when you're constantly moving and sometimes you'd like, I went to three different first grades and several different second grades. And then there's periods where my mom would train me or teach me, you know, while we were traveling or because we weren't going to be someplace long enough to really be enrolled in school. So I would say one of the things that made that complicating is you learn early on because I'd had loss that every time you start to make friends and then you're going to move, ouch, ouch, that doesn't feel good. So you stop really trying to do that. And so it's interesting that I've spent a career working one-to-one with people because most of my life up until, you know, really into my thirties, I was not just an introvert, but painfully shy. And when we would move to a new place, um, I just stopped really even trying to connect. And so I didn't, as a young person, build a lot of those relationship skills. Um, I don't, you know, I still to this day don't have a lot of close friendships. I know a lot of people because of my work, but so I think it, you know, it definitely shaped that. And when you add in this sort of moving thing, um, you know, it has made it has made me for up until my thirties resist getting really close to people because if you lose them, it doesn't feel good. And it wasn't until I got further along into my life that I realized that that's not a fun way to live either. You know, because, you know, granted, if you don't love, no problem with grief, right? Ah, you don't have it, right? So, you know, the, so when you start loving and caring about people, um, you just have to accept that the grief goes with it. But once you've developed some, some skill sets, that happens. And when you talk about even resilience, you know, I always say, I really couldn't agree with you more. I think it's, we do expect children to like, somehow they don't understand and everything's going to be okay. And the problem is because they don't actually understand and their brains don't have all the different inputs and knowledge bases, they can come to some pretty bizarre conclusions, which I did at times about, you know, my self-worth. Did I cause their death? Because, you know, I had a, 
I had broken my sister's crayon that day. And, you know, and she was mad at me as, you know, so, and then she went away. Is it because I broke her crayon? There's all these things that kind of happen with that. And then I would also say, if you're in a really bad place, it's kind of like resilience in, in parts of the developing world that are dealing with war or extreme poverty. There's only so far resilience will take you with, even with an intentionality, if the environment that you're in is constantly, um, you know, difficult, abusive, um, you know, and not really supporting, you know, a full rounded, healthy human being. So it has its limits at some point, if you're in a really bad space, you have to pull your, you know, you have, and unless you can get out of that. And some people can't, some people will live their whole lives in a situation where they can never be all that they could be just because of the nature of their situation. And so they can do the best they can do, but it, there is a limit to where any of this will take you as well. Yeah. When I think of resilience to it in terms of COVID, many, many people are having to kind of dig in that resilience well within them. I mean, this, because we, as we spoke briefly before we started recording, it seems like where is the end? You know, it's like many people asking themselves, when is the end of this? Yeah. And the grief. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, and there's this tendency to, you know, because across the country and across the world, people have responded to the situation. It's bubbled up at different places at different times earlier in the pandemic, it was really no big deal where I live. And now, you know, at this point we are a year and three quarters into the pandemic and my area is, you know, has one of the highest um, case positives in testing. And we had the worst month last month, um, even though we're, you know, while other areas people are out living fairly normally. So I think that's the other thing is, there, is how important it is to approach all of this from a place of empathy. Uh, to realize that some people the whole time, as we talked about earlier before our, our, our conversation now, had to get up every day, no matter what was going on, and put on a mask and go do what they had always done. You know, where it's like I always think of the folks working in the grocery store every time, even to this day, when I go in, I come out with my groceries. You know, I mean, who knew you'd go grocery shopping and have to have a moat space around you? And, uh, and so I always say thank you to the people that have been there throughout all of this to make sure I could get ahead of lettuce, you know, by the same token, there were others because of serious health issues, their own health issues continue. You know, my husband and I are still very, very isolated relative to everyone else we know, because, you know, there's some health issues that we have to be uber careful about. Um, and we know that the virus could be probably fatal um, at this point. So, you know, that's the thing I think is important is to realize whatever is going on in your world, you know, somebody else has a whole different, it's like the invisible bag of rocks. We all have an invisible bag of rocks we're carrying around. We don't know what's in that. So to really approach it with empathy without knowing when people say or do things that seem opposite or irritating or don't agree with our beliefs, um, it's probably because they're coming from actually a very similar place of fear, of concern about well-being. And, you know, COVID put mortality front and center for everyone at all age ranges. It's not just something off out there happening to other people. We know, oh my gosh, this could be me. So what does that mean? Just as there's no hierarchy of grief or a a loss, a type of loss, there's no hierarchy of fear either. You know, it's like your fear is no worse than my fear. My fear is no worse than your fear. And I really, me personally, I, I honestly, I don't watch a lot of the news and I don't, I have made a conscious choice and effort to not worry about COVID. Me, for me personally, my body, mm-hmm. like I am not 
going to let myself succumb to that fear because the fear itself is making people sick too. And I just, I don't, I don't show up. I can't show up with you. I can't show up in my work that I do with my clients and grief in their grief. If I'm sitting here living just consumed by fear, personal well-being, those little breaks we were talking about sitting in the sun, sitting outside in the darkness, thanking the night, thanking the day, thanking the sun, thanking, just giving thanks, right? To wake up. Right. And maybe building in some routine to help bring some normalcy, as much normalcy as you can, just to get through another day. Routines really help. I mean, we tend to think of routines as staid and boring, but they, I mean, I think that's one of the things, again, that happens with any kind of loss or grief. And there's just such a sense of loss because our, you know, just our loss of our way of life, loss of ordinary, the ordinary ability to look at a face and see their whole face, you know, <laughs> you know, is, is, is a loss for a lot of people. Right. So I think, um, taking, you know, having some routine and people will say, well, I'm having a hard time sticking to a routine. There's always a few things. It's like, you know, that for me, it was locking the doors at night. The other thing that's, you know, no matter what is happening, I make a cup of tea in the morning. And so one of the ways I started getting better was trying to add in that, that sort of grief break, you know, after I was having my cup of tea or as I was having, or turn that type of cup of tea into an experience, not just slugging down a quick cup of tea, you know, to really experience everything, the scent, what it looks like in the glass, how the warmth feels in my hands, you know, sniffing it, you know, all of it, the sound of it going down my throat. I'm watching the steam go up and just, you know, disappear into the, you know, to the sky. Um, so finding if people can find a place where their routine still kind of works, where there's something that they just almost always do, and then just start by building even a few minutes. And it sounds crazy. It doesn't sound like it would do that much. But as you know, it just, it can make a huge difference um, in how the rest of your day goes. I have a morning ritual. Um, I get up about 545 and I meditate for about 20 minutes. And then I do my gratitude journal. And there's some other things I do. I've set my pot coffee pot the night before. So it's I grab my cup and I come down my my Zen den, I call it. And, uh, you know, it's people might, well, nothing's happening. I meditate for 10 minutes and nothing's happening. And the monkey doesn't shut up. And I think with grief, the monkeys have like tambourine. So it's like really loud. Yeah, (laughs) the the monkeys going nuts. Yeah. Yeah. All the more reason to like, just sit in nature for a little bit. But I cannot tell you though, after I think I'm on day 39, you're not going to notice anything profound, right? You might get like this intuitive hit or this intuition or the sense or something like you need to do that day or reach out to somebody or whatever. You might get a thought that comes to you. But I think what happens more like naturally unfolds is that you aren't as reactive to people as you would have been before, or as you used to be. And I definitely feel that true for myself. Like I'm not as easily provoked. (laughs) And I think, especially in times of COVID, which can happen very easily amongst family, friends. Yeah, I think it's so important to latch on to something that can help bring some, I, I really, it's sense of peace within yourself. And that, you know, that reactivity thing, I mean, that's a really important place, you know, 
to to think about because it is very easy to be reactive to just and again you're often reacting out of fear or some somebody's pulled your trigger whatever that trigger is but it's also that ability that when you start to feel yourself going down that path it gives you a greater ability to pull yourself back so that you don't mm-hmm. get stuck in that place um, I know just for me and doing my my tiny come back to your senses ritual I do have a process where before I start that ritual, I take a moment to check in with my emotions, to do a quick little body scan, like what's actually going on in my body, what's feeling kind of crinky or crinkly or not great. And then after I'm done with my ritual to just have a little check-in and to say, how am I feeling right now? That also does help bring that sense of momentum. I feel You get that feeling a little bit faster because if you can realize, I actually do feel a little bit better, you know, and that little glimmer, um, I think kind of motivates you for the next time and the next time. So it really, um, yeah, I think we're, we're on the same, very much the same path. Absolutely. So what gives you the most joy and hope for your future? The most joy and hope for my future? Well, quite a few things. I think for me, it's wanting to feel like I can be helpful to other people. Um, I feel like, you know, we all have different things going on in our lives, but we also have something to give. And that even though I'm many ways introverted, and I love a lot of time in solitude. For me, um, finding some way to help others on their journey, whatever that is, to help them be able to be more of what they have the potential to be, to help them unlock their own potential. Any way that I can really um, help people live more fully, um, whatever that means to them. It's not about my way, but to them. That is what really gives me joy and hope for the future and feeling like, you know, you take what you learn and you pass it forward in a meaningful way. My art for my podcast is me on an island with a megaphone, right? Because you feel like you're on an island of one by yourself, like isolated, you know? Exactly. And no one's listening to me. That's why I need this megaphone. So you have a megaphone and you have the world's attention. What do you want to scream to the world about grief? What's your message? Let me think about that for just a quick moment here. I think what I would say is that grief and joy coexist. You have to believe that and you have to know it then that in the mo- no matter how deep your grief is to, to look for and find that opening where joy is still hiding in that moment, it's entirely possible to be in the depths of grief and yet to have go back to you in the moment of sunshine on your patio, that moment of feeling okay, feeling part of life and the world and knowing that you're going to get through it. Um, So I think I would just want people to really know that joy is always there. It doesn't feel like it at times, but you can look for it. You can try to take that break and create those little breaks in grief that let just a little bit of light in. And that, and again, whether we call it joy or peace, as you have been saying, That's, I just think so often people don't believe it. There are uh, some Facebook groups that I, you know, follow. And so often people will feel like I will always be sad. I will always be in this place. And someone recently typed in, everyone talks about they're never, no, I'll never get better. Is that really true? I don't know if I can go on living if that's the truth. Some people don't. I would say the vast majority of people do, but there is an element. And it's what you said earlier, Victoria. There is a degree of choice. And even though we might choose and in the moment, it seems really hard and each day it's not easy. If you just can believe in your bones that there, there is something better for you um, and you just have to try to find a way to get a little break in that grief so it can come in and find you and you can find it. 
that was my story. I over 30 years, right? I thought that was my story. I'm just going to feel like this for the rest of my life. This is, this sucks. <laughs> you know, this sucks. It sucks. You feel stuck. You know, you're not living to your full potential. I felt like I was meant for more. Felt like this, this is just how it is. I am destined to be in this space of suckness and suckiness forever, like Griefville. You know, I was yeah. stuck there. And, but I knew in my bones that I was meant for more. But I knew I was not living up to my full, fullest potential. And so it is really just not letting go of hope that there is something there for you to help you. For me, it was grief recovery. It changed my life. It's led to this podcast. It's led to Reiki. It's opened so many doors for me. It's why I'm talking to you today, literally, yeah. you know, so chase that feeling of feeling good. You want to feel good. Find what makes you feel good. And it's not a stirb, like we say in grief recovery, short-term energy relieving behaviors. It's not alcohol. It's not going to be the drugs. It's not going to be the sex. It's not going to be the man or the book or the fantasy world or whatever. It's actually action, action, moving yourself forward through it, working through it by taking action. That's how you widen that gap. So that was that's actually a key component in my book as well. That you know there is while you can do while there are the hummingbird grievers that go 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 go. That's a different. That's trying to outrun grief right at times. So I couldn't agree more that it is you know finding that intentionality to take some action to create whatever that is. And it's going to be different for different people. I mean, that's, you know, what, what may have worked for you is going to be different for me, different for someone else. But the action is really just sort of waiting. Like, like I have to say, one of my pet peeves is when people say, well, time heals. It's like, no, time is time. I know people who have, who are still, you know, 30 years, that's a long time. That's a you know, time passed and you didn't, you know, you know, that's why I say, you know, we have this one and only heartbroken, but still beautiful life. And so regardless of what we believe after this life, this is the only thing we really know for sure. And I just hate to see anybody not make the most of whatever it is that is, is meaningful for them and the reason that they're here and to feel that sense of purpose. So I'm so glad that you found something that created this moment of being here, talking with each other and seeing your face smile. And you too. It's led to your work. I think our our passions in life is often are often born out of our deepest sorrows. It's very true. In working in philanthropy, people don't often realize how much philanthropy giving, whether that's volunteering, giving financial gifts, um, random acts of kindness, often will come out of people's lost stories, things you know, sadnesses, things that were difficult. And they want to make something better. Now, not only honor somebody, like a lot of giving is a way to try to make sense of out of something that's senseless, basically, you know. Um, but you do. I mean, you know, you just you do find your way. Yeah, there's hope. Don't lose hope. Absolutely. So, where can people? Is, first, is there anything else you'd like to share? I think we covered a lot of ground here today, Victoria. Mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you so much for this conversation. I. I hope that your listeners find some things that we've talked about that will serve them in whatever they are trying to work their way through. Um, and just know that there are people that care about them. It, it may not be obvious right now, but um, they're, they're out there. Absolutely. And where can people reach you if they like to contact you? Well, um, I am at poetowl.com. 
and I will be setting up a special landing page for your listeners. So I will get you that link for your notes so that um, people can, I like to create a special place. So when you're going to a website you've never been to before, you know, you can see a familiar, the podcast cover and just, um, and just know. So it will be hoedal.com slash grieving voices. Um, and so I will get that set up uh, for your listeners. Um, it'll have a link to my book and how you can get that. Um, it'll have a link to the workshop that I uh, offer for people trying to work, find their way back into their lives after a loss. I think I have a griever assessment there, a few things, but certainly my book, uh, an easy link there. Love it. And I'll put all the links to the, in the show notes as well. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for your time today and sharing your story and your wisdom. I very much appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, I have enjoyed it. Take care. You too. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.